Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. All right, today we begin our new sermon series, going through the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the 12 so-called minor prophets, the not-so-minor prophets, as the title of our sermon series suggests. And we're, we're going to hit one book per sermon. So today we're in Hosea. So let me talk for a while before I read from Hosea so you can find it. So just kind of go through there. It's in the middle somewhere. And if somebody nearby has a pew Bible and they found the page number, you can kind of let them know the page number. And don't be embarrassed about that. If you don't know where a certain book in the Bible is, you don't have to make a show that you do. It's more important that you love the Word than that you know the Word because people will love the Word and they will get to know the Word. But I know a lot of people who know the Word, know it really well, and don't love it and don't abide by it. So you want to love the Word. Love what God has to say to you. And that's what we're looking at today. Pray with me if you would. Father God, in Jesus' name we come before you. And we ask that you would stir in us a love for your word, a love for the scriptures, because you speak to us directly through the scriptures, especially in books like this that are so personal, where you refer to yourself in the first person, you say, I, a hundred times. Thank you, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to be changed by hearing from you. We want to bring glory to you through the change that you produce in us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what if God forgave us anyway? That question is not just a New Testament question. In fact, you'll find as we look at this book and the other 11 books that are part of the Minor Prophets, you'll find that the division that some people make much of between the New Testament and the Old Testament really doesn't exist. And you'll see the mercy of God. That's what we're focusing on today, as well as other attributes of God featured prominently, powerfully in these books. What if God forgave us anyway? What if faith meant counting on God's mercy no matter what? Well, Let's, let's look at what mercy is. Here's a definition of it. You can find online, mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So right now, if you surveyed the world or the nation or your home or that space within you that you call yourself, near the top of the list or at the top of the list of things you need would be mercy. You now, right now, need the mercy of God. You can't get anywhere without it. The mercy of God is what you've been experiencing already today. Here you are, and you're alive, and you're with others, and you're experiencing all kinds of other blessings. That is all the result of the mercy of God. And our lives are the result of the mercy of God. Maybe we get sick and die, but we live. Maybe we lose a loved one, but we had a loved one. All that is the mercy of God. Mercy is on everyone's list of what makes life livable. It gives humanity hope, and nothing wounds more than a lack of mercy. 
So our need for mercy reveals our need for forgiveness. And Pastor Tim Keller wrote this. He said, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. Amen? Amen, say all the wrongdoers. Amen. That's right. <laughs> so we're, we're beginning this 12-part series, and these are the books in order, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Some of those names might sound strange to you. And certainly some of the contents of these books will appear strange. They're, they're hard to pronounce names. There are strange images. But give yourself a chance to get used to them if you're not used to them. Lots of people are discouraged by strange-sounding names or strange imagery, and they just say, well, I, I, this doesn't have anything to do with me. It's not relevant. Let me assure you that nothing can be more relevant in your life than the Word of God, than the Word of God as presented through the minor prophets. Nothing. I mean, think about how the whole nation is going to spend the day today following the exploits of some misshapen ball back and forth. And depending on where that ball ends up, one group of people will be very happy and there'll be just great celebration and one other group of people will be downcast. Yes, relevance is here. Amen? Okay? This is the important stuff. This is the stuff you need. We need the mercy of God. And so this sermon series will be, you know, one book, one sermon. So each book will have one sermon. And that means we're taking a 10,000 feet up or 30,000 feet up look at the whole thing. We're going to look at what the whole book means. And in some cases, it's not that much of a stretch because the whole book is one chapter. Lots of these books are two chapters or three chapters. This particular book is 14 chapters. And so we want to take a look at what the whole thing means. It's important to study words in Scripture, right, and phrases. I like preaching sermons on five or ten verses, but also it's good to preach on a whole book. You know, and look at the whole, what's this, what is this book for? Why is this here? Why did God include this book in Scripture? Now, this sermon series is going to be interrupted frequently by my traveling to Israel and other places and by Holy Week. And Holy Week will be based on the fulfillment of prophecies. So the sermon series title for Holy Week, Palm Sunday and Easter and some of the services in between, will be titled Fulfilled, speaking of the fulfillment of the prophecies in Scripture that Christ represents, that Christ embodies. So throughout the spring and summer, you're going to get sermons from all five of us, and it's, it's rich stuff. So really look forward to God speaking to you, maybe surprising you, maybe learning parts of the Bible you've not spent much time with, parts of the Bible you don't know much about. And, and let it be a process of discovery, not discouragement. Let it be what God wants it to be in your heart. He wants to bring change, and that's what, that's what will happen. So I think we've got to start by talking about what prophecy is, and so, it, it's a prediction. 
right? A forecast, a, a prognosis, a foretelling. You know, I, I, I found this somewhere. It's called the inspired declaration of divine will and purpose. That's good. It's important to distinguish between foretelling and forthtelling. Now, all the biblical prophets do both. They foretell many, many things, and the most important things that they all foretell are the things of Christ. So, He fulfills things that centuries before they speak about. And the more you study, the more you see that, and the more that observation brings assurance to you and confidence to you, and the more you realize the true relevance of the Word of God in your life. Because God spoke through these prophets about His Son, and, and the whole Bible shows us the need for His Son. And in this book in particular, we're going to see lots of judgment, you know, lots of, I mean, the, the Word of God is a, is a book of judgment. Each of us is judged to the bone by the Bible. And that's why we need mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? The love of God shows forth when we need it. We need to be saved. We're in trouble. We're in a bad place, in a bad condition, and we need someone from the outside who can. We need that someone with a capital S to save us, and that is Jesus Christ. And the prophets bring this out over and over again. So, the, the wording is harsh. You're going to see that in Hosea. You're going to be like, whoa, I don't even know if you can say that in church. And I'm reading Scripture to you. It's, it's, it's harsh. And, and some of the pictures and images are like that because the prophets were called to be like this. So, as we go through our, our definition of prophets, kind of setting the stage for this study, we want to really be clear about what minor means. It's not like the minor leagues and the major leagues, okay? They're called minor because of their size. Supposedly, all 12 of the minor prophets fit on one scroll. And then Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they take up a whole scroll. You know, so that's, that's all it is about size, not about significance, not about importance. They're not less significant or less important. That's really important to, to underscore and to realize. Also, our faith is built on the foundation of these prophets on what they say. And, and Jesus relied on this for His teaching. He, he pulled from what the prophets said, and his, his story is based on what they predicted. And that's because He inspired that centuries before His birth. He, he's been involved the whole time, and it's been about Him the whole time. I wrote at the bottom, a better life awaits those, all those who have a better grasp of the prophets. So, it's, I think it's always helpful to look at what the general culture thinks about what's going on inside the church, meaning the people that are believers. And this is what Wikipedia says about prophecy. Let's see what we think of it. In religion, a prophecy is a message that has been communicated to a person typically called a prophet by a supernatural entity. Prophecies are a feature of many cultures and belief systems and usually contain divine will or law or preternatural knowledge, for example, of future events. They can be revealed to the prophet in various ways depending on the religion and the story, such as visions, divination, or direct interaction with divine beings in physical form. Stories of prophetic deeds sometimes receive considerable attention 
and some have been known to survive for centuries through oral tradition or as religious texts. So not bad. I like to break out the, the, the one line there in the beginning. A prophecy is a message that has been communicated to a person, typically called a prophet by a supernatural entity. Generalized way of saying this, in other words, prophecy is a message from God. So when you're hearing a prophet, you're hearing God. When you, when you read the words of the prophets in Scripture, you're reading the words of God. Like I mentioned before, the word I is used about 100 times just in this book, in the book of Hosea. And it's God saying, I, I. It's personal. It, it, it demolishes the idea that there's a distant God. He's not distant, never has been, never will be. Prophecy is a message from God using the most direct message the direct method God in Scripture usually chooses to deliver his message. And th this is what he chooses. He chooses a solitary, chosen, flawed human being, one. And that's the prophet. And he's not very popular. He doesn't have many friends, and he has a tough life. You don't want to be a prophet if you have a choice. So what kind of, you know, what color is my parachute? You know, well, I think I'll be a prophet. Oh, boy. That's going to be a tough life for you. And you don't really get to choose to be one anyway. He chooses you. Amen? So he chose these individuals to go through what they went through so that he would speak to us, even now, even here, personally and directly. That's what we find in, in this book, in Hosea and in the other prophets. Another way of looking at it, it's like tomorrow's news, prophecy, hot off the press from heaven itself, right? So that's the foretelling part, and maybe some of the foretelling too. But it goes deeper because we don't just get information ahead of time, looking back in time about Christ, but we get information about the character of God. It's, it's more than just foretelling. It's God revealing himself in the message that he gives the prophet. And that's what you're going to see here. So in each of these books, I'm, I'm going to pick a passage to access the book and then verses that accent the meaning of the book. So a passage to access and then verses that accent. So the passage to access would be chapter 3. So if you found Hosea, some of you are still looking. All right. <laughs> if you found Hosea, go to chapter 3. And we'll look at the, the shape of the book. It's 1 through 3 and 4 through 14. And 1 through 3 is this, this pretty brutal illustration that's summed up in chapter 3. And here you're going to find some strange imagery, strange names. But let's, uh, let's, let me read this. this. is the Word of God, Hosea 3. I'll put it on the screen as well. And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. 
Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So, kind of everything you need to know about Hosea is in that chapter. There are some weird things like cakes of raisins, like, oh, I like raisins. Uh oh, maybe I can't have raisins anymore. Now, this is a, it's a Canaanite religious cultic rite. You know, it's something that's there as part of the, the religion of the land. And the religion of the land basically was Baalism. Israel was caught up in this. It was a popular, sexualized religion, the spirit of which is still very much alive everywhere today. It appealed to the sex drive by way of ritual prostitution. So if you go back, and I encourage you to go back, read the whole book, but as you go back and read chapters 1, 2, and 3, you'll see this, and you've already gotten some idea of the, of the brutality of the illustration. And you'll see it. And I'll, I'll put chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and a little bit of 3 up there, too, just to, to show you the beginning of that illustration. And then you'll see following that, this diagnosis and the description of how Israel was unfaithful. So the adulterous woman represents unfaithful Israel. Now, Baal was a, a weather god, uh, little g, false god, of course. He was, they designed him to be the source of influencing fertility and provision and harvests, and it was combined with this, this sort of religion of sex and magic uh, kind of I means everything that everyone wants in a god, a vending machine, right? And, and put all the, the propensity of flesh in there as well, and you have the religion of humanity. If we're going to invent a religion, it's going to look something like this, and it's going to be a version of this one way or another. And this is what Israel was, was falling into. This is what they were buying into. And you see here 15 shekels being the price of Hosea buying back his own wife. That's the pain point here. He had to buy back his own wife. A slave back then usually cost 30 shekels, so he had 15 shekels, and then he gave some other goods to bring the value up to 30 shekels, most scholars believe. And he had to buy back his wife. And, of course, you can see the parallel, can't you, between Christ and the church, because Christ on the cross bought us back. And of course, that's part of how the prophets work. Over and over again, you're going to be reminded of Christ, Christ of whom they were speaking before, well before, centuries before he was born. So the, the adulterous woman here is unfaithful, Israel. Her name is Gomer. Here's that, that set of verses from the beginning, just to give you a good framework for looking at the whole book. The Word of God. That's what it is. That came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he lived through four kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. There are two separate kingdoms. Judah's a southern kingdom. Israel's a northern kingdom. This is a prophecy against Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblin, and on it goes. Tough. 
you don't like it now. Nobody liked it then either. Well, maybe they liked this kind of thing back then. No, that's the whole point. It wasn't pleasant to hear, good to hear. It was tough to hear. The, the bad news precedes the good news, and without the bad news, there is no need for the good news. Without the judgment, there is no need for the mercy. But now we see, as we look at the totality of the book, a display of the mercy of God that really is only rivaled by the cross of Christ itself. So, we want, as we look at this, kind of, here's the overview, right? You got one through three, Gomer, that's the name of the unfaithful wife, who had three children, Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. Those are the names of the children. And at the end of chapter 2, in the middle of this illustration, that's 1 through 3, you see God, you hear God say, I'm going to have mercy on the one called no mercy. I'm going to call not my people, my people. So you see the mercy, the forgiveness, the love of God shine through, even as the condemnation of God's people is, is proclaimed in the starkest of terms. 4 through 14 is this description, this diagnosis of the unfaithfulness of Israel, peppered with illustrations of God's mercy despite it all. You have condemnation and redemption, you know, judgment, salvation. Picture of the cross, really? I mean, it really is. The faithfulness of God, really inexplicable. And that's, you, you know you're reading it right when the love of God, the mercy of God, his faithfulness makes no sense. You're like, why? Why, just be, why not just be done with us? I mean, we've, we've done everything we can to mess things up between us and you, God, and yet you still don't give up on us. You, you remain faithful. You remain merciful. And it's, it's that, that posture that the prophet wants to inspire. You know, whatever hubris, whatever pride you might feel, whatever religious attainment or success you might credit yourself with, the prophet wants to strip you of all that, to strip you of all of that and, and, and show you in, in the ugliest way possible. You know, sometimes you, you have a mirror and the lighting is just right and you look in the mirror and you scare yourself. You're like, oh, and you say, turn the light off. It'll look better, you know. Well, the prophet's turning all the lights on, you know, to show you every little bit there that would be offensive, that would be ugly in the eyes of God. We want to look at the geographical context, too. It's important to remember where we are in time as well as geography. So it's 740 B.C., 722 B.C., Assyria is going to come and wipe Israel out. Assyria perfected, maybe invented, psychological terror in warfare, they would, they would behead their victims and make little pyramids of the heads. They would do things like that. So that's who's coming. According to the prophets, they're coming because of the unfaithfulness of God. So you see that. As you sow, so shall you reap. You've sown unfaithfulness. You've sown sin. And so you're going to reap now the, the consequence of that sin as a nation. And in the middle of all this, we see that, that exile... All the prophets present this. Exile, defeat militarily, politically. That defeat is really a path to victory. Exile is a path to redemption for Israel. Now, maybe you can't see Israel. It's kind of small there. Here's a blow-up version of it. There's Israel and Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Jerusalem's in Judah. 
Israel had all wicked kings. You know, there was a united kingdom at first, right? You had Saul and David and Solomon, 120 years of united kingdom, and then that went away. The kingdom was divided, north and south. Israel's the north. No good kings in Israel from that point on. Maybe one king a little less evil than the other ones, but they're all bad all the time. And then Judah, you had some good kings and some bad kings, a mix. And, of course, Judah is where Christ comes from. The line of Judah goes directly to David, directly to Christ. And so we see everything. I mean, the map is built to show you Christ. And in the midst of this, as you read Hosea, if you spend any time reading it, you, you get a sense of what fiction writers call the all-is-lost moment. In order to have fiction of any kind, whether it's literary fiction or fiction you see in the form of a film, you got to have an all-is-lost moment. You know in Star Wars when the rebel planet came within range of the Death Star, you know, the Death Star has cleared the planet. I think that's the exact quote. i got to quote it exactly because some of you are purists. The Death Star has cleared the planet. The Death Star has cleared the planet. Rebel base in range. You may file when ready. Commence primary ignition. That's the all-is-lost moment. And that's what the prophets point out over and over again. Hosea is no exception. Here's that all-is-lost moment, one of them anyway, in Hosea. Notice that it doesn't focus on geopolitical defeat, a, a visual of that psychological terror I just described. It focuses on the heart, the interior defeat. They shall eat, it says in Hosea 4. 10 through 12. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. That's the all-is-lost moment, one of them anyway. And it reveals to us what the prophet's intent was. So Assyria is the, the visible threat, and you're going to see this. These prophets are all speaking to Israel at one point or another as Israel, as Judah, as the people of God lose their national possessions. They lose their stuff. They lose themselves. They're forced into exile. And so they, they speak at different times in this process, these different prophets, all to a nation losing itself because it already lost itself on the inside. That's how life works. We lose heart, and then we lose the rest. What's in your heart really will determine what's going on in the rest of your life. And sometimes you can learn a great deal about what's in your heart by looking around at how your life is going. How is it going? What is being taught to you by your circumstances? as far as your circumstances may be telling you something about your heart. Sometimes we can learn, not all the time, but sometimes we can learn about our hearts by what's going on around us because our hearts are, are creating for us the way we live, the choices we make. So there's that reality of, of Assyria coming, but Hosea's priority is not that. I, I, Hosea's priority, like every prophet, was to see Israel turn back to God. Not that they would succeed as a nation. It's not against that. But, you know, and, and it's important to understand, no nation succeeds. History is, you know, will reassure you of this. There's no nation that lasts, 
including Israel and Judah. And the whole point of salvation is that God rescues us out of the failure of all the nations of all the earth and forms for himself a people, a kingdom. That's the good news. That's what it is. So we have this comparison in this book and in the other books. Seduction of sin, love of God. Baalism, that whole religion, no love of God. God's a vending machine, and, and we're going to do what we want to make that work the way we want it to work and get what we want. Seduction of sin, it seduces us. God loves us in contrast to sin, in contrast to the way we constantly are setting up our world. God loves us. Now, as we look at all this, we see that Israel's sin, our sin, sin is extensive, but it can't exhaust, it can't bypass or cancel the love of God, the mercy of God. And so you go through the book, and I recommend that you do it. You go through the book, you read one through three, and you're like, oh, just enough. You're responding correctly to a prophet if that's your heart response. Like, oh, make it stop. And then you read four and five. Now you're starting to get the diagnosis. And then we get to six. And Hosea 6 is one of three sections in Hosea that I want to offer to you that I want to encourage you to make note of so that you can turn back here when you need it. Because there's some verses here that are... are I, I've experienced them in so many powerful ways because they remind me of the, the, the unfiltered, unvarnished, unquestioned mercy of God. And like I said before, sometimes that's the first thing we need. we need. We need to know that God has mercy on us. We didn't earn it. We didn't, we didn't do things right so now that he would show mercy. You know, we, we didn't uh, get to a place where he likes us now. You know, we've been good girls and good boys. And, you know, he says, okay, well, you're, I see you're doing a lot of good work here. Oh, excellent. So just a little more. Try just a little harder. Do just a little more, and I will welcome you in. Nope. That's not God at all. That's not in the Bible at all. That's Baalism. That's human religion, you know? I, I do this for you, God, and you do this for me. But we, there's nothing we can do for God. And there's everything that he can do for us. So it's, it's really not very balanced. We like to think it is. That's why we make our religions the way we make them. But what he gives us in the Bible, in his word, through the gospel, is so very different. And we'll see that. First, I want to show you Hosea 6, 1 through 3. This is, this is our response, and it's, it's a response of, of resting in the arms of God. And in every different English translation I've read of this, it's, it's been beautiful. Here it is now. It's really our last chance, our next move, after we take to heart what Hosea says to us, what the prophet says, because we know it's not the prophet speaking, it's God speaking. And we're a mess. We're in trouble. We need mercy. So what do we do? Here's what we do. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. 
After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Amen. It's, this is good stuff, man. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm going to pass out up here, you know, just reading this stuff. Like, this is so good. And so many times I've been to that place where I feel like he's torn me. He said no to my prayer request. I get something in life. and I'm like, that's not what I prayed for. That's not what I prayed for. I prayed for the other thing, God. Did you not hear me? You know, I feel broken up, torn down. And all the while, I know that the, the real person who got torn, the, the, the real person who got struck down was not me. It was Christ. He experienced the tearing and the striking that I would experience the revival and the, and the binding and the, and the healing, the, the being raised up, the being found alive in Him. Sometimes there's nothing better, maybe all the time, there's nothing better than just being alive in Christ. Amen? I'm alive in God. I have life in me, spiritual life in me. The rest of my life is a mess, but I don't care. I'm bored with the rest of my life, bored with the mess, and I want to know about God. That's what's so good about the prophets. They're not talking about you the way we talk to each other about ourselves. You know, oh, you're wonderful. You're wonderful. Don't say that bad thing about yourself. Okay, I won't. Oh, no. No, no. God says, you're all kinds of not wonderful, and you got me. And I'm never going to leave your side. I'm never going to abandon you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to fix you. He does it. What do we do? We return. We lay back in his arms. We return to him. And he does the healing. He does the binding. He does the reviving and the raising. He makes us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. He does it. We want to press on to know him, press on to get to know him, to experience him, his love, his power. I, I wrote this as, as a reminder to myself. Maybe it will help you. Sometimes you got to go to the bad place to get the good thing. You got to acknowledge what's ugly. You got to acknowledge what's wrong, the wrongdoing, the problem, the appropriateness of the judgment you feel. That the guilt is not guilt, it's truth. The shame is not shame, it's truth. And you get to that place, and the Bible will get you there and get you there safely because you know the one who's bringing you there cares for you. He's not pointing these things out out of any other reason, from any other motivation than his love for you. We can't heal from our past by running from it. We can't live better lives until we acknowledge that the lives we're living are not good. The choices we're making are not good or godly. You can't get better until you acknowledge that you're sick. You can't get better until you know you're sick and you know what's making you sick. And the prophets were like doctors. They are like doctors for our souls. They are precise and detailed about what is making us sick. That's what Hosea was talking about, whether anyone was listening to him or not. And the cure they offer is not a what. It's a who. Let us return to the Lord. It's a who. The prophets point to the heart of God in this. The heart of God being the wellspring of mercy. Now, you've got Hosea 6. 
1 through 3. I want to show you now, these are anchors for, for looking at the diagnosis and seeing the mercy in the midst of it. I want to show you now Hosea 11, 8 through 9. Keep in mind, this is God speaking. He's the I here. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's another name for Israel, the people of God. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So these are nations that reject him, Adma, Zeboim. I will not execute my, my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This says that in the Old Testament. You know, the, the, the Testament where God's mean. We don't like it. We don't like him. What? That's wrong. Look at what it says here. He will not come in wrath. And so the picture of God that we get in the Bible is the same picture of God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. And you can see him in Genesis all the way through to Revelation, and the prophets are pointing that out. I, I highlighted some of the verses here. My heart recoils within me. This is God. God's heart for you. There's a tenderness towards you, a passion for your well-being. That's correct. To perceive that is to perceive the truth. Whatever else is rummaging around in your head is not the truth. And do your best to dispose of it, to discard it, and to embrace the truth, and to live accordingly. Live like someone who inspires this from his or her creator. My heart recoils within me. My passion grows warm and tender at the thought of rejecting you. I won't do it. And this is all on God, not on us. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything. We didn't earn any points of credit. We didn't find some way to get him to do what we wanted. Now he'll be nice to me because I prayed the right prayer. I read the right book about praying the right prayer. None of that nonsense. Here it is in the Word of God. I am God and not a man. Last night someone shouted out, Amen. <laughs> right at that point. Yes, he is not like us, men and women. He is God. He became like us, stayed God as he did. It's a remarkable thing. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Don't live. Don't think. Don't perceive of yourself in a way that contradicts the Word of God. You may not. You are not allowed to do that. You have no permission from Him to do that. And after all, you belong to Him. And so you must abide with Him and His Word. You must say, yes, you, you do not come to me in wrath. And you only feel that when you know He ought to. By all rights. Why not? No reason. We can't find the reason because we can't dig that deeply into the heart of God to know why he would love us in the first place, but he does, and we ought not, cannot deny it. So let me show you one more. 
one of my favorite verses from this part of the Bible. Hosea 14.4. This is God speaking again. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God will heal your apostasy, your disbelief, your faithlessness, your doubt, your, your, your sinning, the, the thing that makes you want to sin. God is working on that. God will heal you of that. Look at that. Forget about having confidence in yourself, confidence in your circumstances or your context. That's misplaced confidence. Put your confidence in the Word of God. He will heal. The worst part of you, the part of you that rejects Him, He will heal that. Do you see your role here? You do not. Well, He loves me because I'm lovable. That's not what it says here. In fact, there's a very nice way of saying I love you despite whatever you are, whatever you've made yourself to be, whatever condition you're in, I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. And that last set of words is only possible because of the Christ. That's the anger turning from us. The anger of God turning from us is the gospel, is Jesus Christ, what he did for us on the cross. Oh, amen, isn't it? Isn't it something you got to say amen to? Amen. Oh, God, surprise me. We, we, we always think there's this, this, we always think it's such a chore to be a Christian. Oh, it's this, such a, a, a burden. What? What? It's a burden not to be. It's a burden not to be. The burden to be on your own. <laughs> An immeasurable burden. There's no burden here at all. Free. He loves us freely. Let him love you freely. Accept it, receive it, rest in it, trust it. Abandon anything that interferes with it in your thinking. Let the Word of God renew your mind. It says that in the Bible because your mind needs renewal. And you've noticed that about your mind, haven't you? It's not helping you much, is it? Right? It's malfunctioning often. Amen? Come on now. Let's get real. Let's keep it real. Right? Your mind needs renewing because we reject this. An hour from now, you're going to do something, say something that shows that you have no knowledge of these words that are on the screen, these words that are in the Bible. And, you, and you'll catch yourself at it like, oh, renew my mind. I need transformation. I need mercy. Yes, you do. The way the, a worship service is organized, we, we gather, we come together, we, we worship, we proclaim. This is the proclamation time. But there always must be a response, too. So when, when, you, when you see the little the guide for the, the service that Jeff produces for us, there's response time. How, how do you respond? Well, our response is given to us in one of the verses we've already looked at, Hosea 6. We return to the Lord. How do you do that today? What, what is, what's involved in that for you? We know that 
There's not effort on our part. There's not something we need to accomplish. So what would interfere? That's the question. If there's something interfering, what would be an obstacle here? Let the Spirit bring to mind whatever that is. He's torn us, struck us down, but He's not done with us. It's amazing how the prophet describes the experience of reading his prophecy, because the prophecy seems to tear us down and strike us down, but really it does more. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's press on to know him. Let's feel the refresh, the refreshing rain that's described here in our own hearts and minds knowing that it comes from nothing we did. You didn't do anything right to get here. And if you do anything right, it's to his credit. Anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, and we're in awe of your word, and it leaves us speechless. It really does. I guess that's why there's so much singing in heaven. Because what, what are we going to say? Lord, help us to see you as you portray yourself in your word. We all have, whether it's an idol or not, some version of you we've made up that is substandard, that is subscriptural. You've shown us who you are in your word, your mercy for us, that you will not abandon us, that your, your heart is, is, is filled with passion for our salvation, for our well-being, so that you would be with us and we would be with you. You heal our apostasy. You heal our unbelief, our faithlessness. Do that work. Would you do that work, Lord? We say yes to your word. That's what needs healing. That's what I need. I thought I needed all this other stuff, Lord. And now I know, well, that's important too, or maybe it isn't, but this is prior. I need your mercy. I need your mercy. I pray for anyone here who's reaching out for your mercy now. Would you bless them? Some want to cross the line from unbelief to belief. Let them do that now. Let them pray to you now. Let them say, the prophet's right. I, I'm a wrongdoer. I'm on the wrong side of grace right now, and I want to cross over. Let anyone who is being drawn by your word now feel your power as you draw them to yourself as they cross over from death to life, as they confess you, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord of their lives, as they confess that your death on the cross has paid the price for all their sin and the resulting death and the resulting hell and set them free. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Continue your work in our midst, Holy Spirit, as we worship, as we sing and proclaim the glories of the mercy of God. In your name, Jesus, we pray and all of God's people said, amen. 
Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.